It is a uh, terrific honor to be here, and I have to tell you up front that I, I'm not exactly certain why I am up here, <laughs> other than that I share the worldview of AHA and the mission. And by the way, let that be a point of admonition to you guys. Quit calling it an ideology. We're not Marxists. <laughs> it's a worldview. It's nothing more than Christian worldview applied. So when people accuse you of being an organization and you want to answer that question or whatever, don't say, oh, it's an ideology. Say, this is a worldview. It's a Christian worldview. Replace that, and I'll be a lot happier. <laughs> okay. As you can tell, oh, by the way, I was saying this is a terrific, terrific honor, and I don't know why I'm up here, but I do know why I don't know why I'm up here. And that is because I'm so impressed with what you guys have been doing. I think Mike Goley posted the other day a comment to us saying something like this. You know, I read the old Reconstructionist writers, and I realize that what we're doing with AHA is what they wrote about 20 years ago. And we're putting it into action. And those of us who have been on that ride, on the intellectual and the writing and publishing side of things, are, are looking at this movement saying, wow, yes, yes, yes. And unlike the, the celebrity top-down control culture that has all of Christianity in America by its grasp. We don't just want to teach people stuff and have you keep coming back to us every Sunday and sitting in our pews and listening to us and buying our books and doing our stuff and letting us have control of everything, top-down control over the ministry, and never actually getting anything done. Never actually maturing and progressing and moving beyond the things we're teaching and putting into words. And we see you guys doing that. And so those of us, like Bojadar, myself, and some others, are tremendously encouraged. And so it's great to me to be here and affirm what you're doing, put another voice to it, put it out before a whole bunch of people in another ministry, and, and try to build some more support. It's a, ter a terrific honor for me to be here, because I'm not here to minister to you guys. You guys have been ministering to me the whole time I've been here. Okay? And I don't say that just to flatter you. I mean that. I mean that. We don't want to just keep you in the room and teach you like some other guys do. We want to teach you everything we had to teach you and then kick you out. We want to raise disciples up to the point where we say, look, I've given you everything I've got. You're no longer a student. You are now an activist. You're now a teacher yourself. Go do it and leave me behind. Please. I mean, still buy my books. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but leave us behind. Move on. Yes. Well, we'll talk about that later. That's a different talk. As you can tell, if you're looking at the schedule or looked at the title of my little talk here, which is going to be short because I do have to catch a plane, uh, this is a very detailed, uh, technical, <laughs> theological subject that I'd like to talk about. Okay? Crumbs, dust, and trigger words. Okay. Now when I say crumbs, I want to teach you a distinction that I think some of you guys are already hitting on. I think Russell hit on it some. Somebody made a meme about it this morning. I saw it. I said, well, I hope they didn't steal my thunder. Crumbs is what incrementalism really is. When people tell me, oh, I, I don't want to do, the, do what you guys are doing. I'm an incrementalist. I say, you're not an incrementalist. Oh, yes, I am. I, I, if I can take it I hear, I'm going to get it. I have never yet seen what goes under the name of incrementalism 
actually provide an increment. Because increments are small bits that build upon each other toward a certain goal. Partial birth abortion is not an increment. Fetal pain is not an increment. It never stops or reduces abortions. It just finds a way to channel them or to do them earlier or find them in a different location or go to a larger abortion complex. Okay, it never stops, it never curtails. What those things really are, are crumbs that are being tossed to you to placate you. Right. Don't fall for the crumbs. Right. Let me tell you a little bit about incrementalism. Now I know some guys have given you talks, so this is not about theory. You all know, that. again, this, why am I up here? You know this stuff already. I'm here to reinforce some things for you from my perspective. I'll tell you a little story from some stuff I'm working on studying right now. In 1619, a boat landed on the shores at Jamestown Port in Virginia, and it dropped off for the first time in the United States, well, not United States, in the colonies, a load of, according to the manifest, 20 niggers. That's the way it was spelled, I'm quoting, okay? The first 20 black slaves were dropped off in Virginia in that year. About this time, the Virginia economy was going into a boom with tobacco. There's a whole story there, I'd love to tell it, but don't have time. They began to export tobacco exponentially to England. What happens when you have a boom in the economy? What do you need? Labor. So they began to import labor, but the problem is early Virginia labor was indentured servitude. It wasn't slavery. Indentured servants worked for seven to ten years and then they were set free, they would go start their own farms. And the big planters, the big, no. the big agencies, the big corporatists said we need a steady supply of labor and they couldn't get it. They couldn't keep bringing these indentured servants over. So when this slave ship lands, this Dutch slave ship in 1619 drops off the slaves, bing, light bulb goes on. And they began to create a supply or demand for slave labor and it began to ramp up they began to import them more and more and more now there's a whole lot to the story I'm going to leave out but there were a lot of uh, passions a lot of prejudices obviously a lot of racism that built up during this period to the point where uh, there were some problems there were some problems with these black slaves because they did not have in English common law they did not have a doctrine of permanent slavery except for heathens in some, like uh, non-Christians in some contexts. So they began to move and say, what can we do here? What can we do? And they began to twist and pervert the laws. They began to borrow from other traditions like Roman civil law, which, is, which we, you would understand most readily as something like guilty until proven innocent, the opposite of what our free traditions are. Okay? And they began to create statutes to enforce these new servants they had brought to be permanent servants. In 1661, they passed the first increment. This is the wicked doing this, okay? I'm giving you an example from the other side of how this works. They passed a law that said, if you are in a party of servants that's running away and you're white, you will, and you're caught, you will have to pay the time for the black slaves that were run away you will have to pay their additional time back to their master in servitude. All right, small increment, 
Still not permanent slavery. Okay? In 1657, they passed a law that said, if you're a slave that runs away from the plantation, we're going to brand you. In 1662, they passed a particularly onerous law because there was a problem, see? What happened if a slave woman gave birth to a mixed-race child? Uh-oh, that means some white male had been involved. What if it was the master? What if it was one of his sons? Actually, fairly common. Under English common law, the person's status follows the father. What are we going to do? We're in an English colony. Our standard's English common law. But we don't want these people to go free. Because then we'd have all these mixed-race babies running around among us. They called them mulattoes. So they passed a law in 1662, borrowing from the Roman civil law tradition, and a phrase, here's, here's a good fancy phrase since you think everyone thinks I'm smart, partus sequitur ventrum. The offspring follows the womb. Well, where did they get that idea to just completely flip the law on its head? Oh, well, they went over to the law for things and personal property and the law for cattle and applied it to black slaves. The first clear instance in American jurisprudence in which slaves were considered mere chattel property. But there was still a loophole here. Permanent slavery was only justified if somebody was not a Christian. What happened if one of these slaves got baptized? There were actually court cases about this and people sued for their freedom because they got baptized and became Christians and they said, I am now an indentured servant. I could be free at the end of a certain term. Let me go free. And they won their freedom. And that made all the masters and plantation owners very scared because now they were afraid all the slaves were going to convert just to be free. So they passed a law in 1667, again, completely unprecedented, that said baptism does not change the status of the slave and they kept them slaves. Another increment. In 1670, they passed a, a law that said all imported non-Christians will be slaves no matter what if they're brought over on a ship. Well, suddenly, people started coming across landlines that were Africans and not slaves. So they passed another law in Virginia that said if you cross over a state boundary on the land, and you're not a Christian, and you're an African, you're a slave, no matter what. 1669, they passed a law to discourage slaves from running away that say, if you find a slave just lurking about in the woods or in some hidden spot, you can shoot him. You can kill him. Laws were passed that said, if you come across a slave and he has a dangerous object in his hand, you are justified in killing him. Later they passed a law and tweaked that one that says if you come across a slave and he doesn't have an object in his hand, you can still kill him. These were the precedents that lasted all the way up until the American Revolution. But in 1776, there was this revolutionary document passed that had this line in it that really started a lot of people. It said, we're all born equal. Right? our Declaration of Independence. So in the 1770s, there was actually a lot of sentiment that was against slavery and wanted to abolish it. 
So as they were drafting up the Constitution and those documents during that time, one of the number one issues in the convention was the southern states demanding they get the right to keep their slaves as slaves. It divided almost every discussion that went on. Up until that point, they, had to, they passed taxes that they apportioned by each state by population. And the southern state says, well, we can't count our slaves because they're not persons. But then when it came time during the constitutional conventions, they said, well, we do want them to be counted as persons for purposes of representation in Congress. And the North said, oh, no, 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 no. You've done told us all over on every issue that they're just property. So they compromised, as you all know, on the three-fifths compromise. In other clauses, they called them not persons, but other persons. And it was clear to most scholars in hindsight that they were considered property in general because if they weren't, the due process clause would have applied to them. No man can be deprived of his life or liberty without due process. What black slave got ever, ever got due process? So they would have been set free, so they had to have been classified as property. But the, the, the southern states were also a little bit nervous because they had this clause in the Constitution called the Interstate Commerce Clause. Our lawyers are all shaking their heads. Our lawyer, I guess. <laughs> and that says that the federal government has the right to regulate interstate commerce. Right? So if slavery was property, that means slavery is commerce, anything related to interstate commerce could have been regulated by the federal government. And so the southern states agitated against that point enough, but they wanted them to remain property. They were stuck on this issue. So they said, look, give us 20 years. Promise us that for 20 years, we cannot change this subject. We cannot regulate slavery. Or we cannot, I'm sorry, we cannot abolish the slave trade. So they did. They wrote that into the Constitution. We will not entertain this idea for 20 years, which would have been 1807. Sure enough, during this time, there were forces that wanted to outlaw slavery. What did they do? They couldn't abolish it, could they? So they, they decided, well, the, the Interstate Commerce Clause says we can regulate it. Let's start regulating it. I see in these regulations a perfectly, perfect parallel to the pro-life ministries today. In 1794, the federal government passed a law that said no ship that is built in an American port can transport slaves. That was a regulation. And no U.S. port can outfit a ship for transporting slaves across the Atlantic. If you do, we're going to fine you. So guess what happened? All right, fine. We'll just contract with the British ships and the Dutch ships and the French ships and the Spanish and Portuguese ships, all of whom are bringing us the ample supply of slaves we need. In 1800, they said, all right, then we're going to increase the fines. What did that do? Nothing. In 1803, they expanded the definitions. Did nothing. Finally, the, the date gets here, 1807, and they finally passed a law outla outlawing the Atlantic slave trade. The irony here is most people don't know that the first commonwealth in the world to outlaw the Atlantic slave trade was not Wilberforce in Britain. It was not the U.S. Congress in America. It was the, the state of Virginia in 1787. Do you think they cared about the interstate or the, the transatlantic supply? 
Why not? They already had millions of slaves in their own lands. They bought and sold them to each other and they bred them for sale. They weren't dependent upon transatlantic trades. And in fact, if you read the pro-slavery apologist literature and the uh, uh, antebellum era and thereafter, they brag about this. We were the first ones to outlaw the trade. Where were you guys? Okay. People that don't know the rest of the history don't know what to say back. So what did they start doing? They had a huge cotton boom in the South. Tobacco was falling off in Virginia. They just started selling all their slaves to the Deep South. Didn't change a thing. Regulating didn't change a thing. Well, maybe we can do it through the Supreme Court then. So after this time, we start getting a series of Supreme Court cases that apply to slavery. In 1825, you had a famous case by Judge Marshall called uh, about a ship called the Antelope. The Antelope was actually, uh, if I remember correctly, it was a, an American captain, but most of its cargo was African slaves. They had never been on American soil, and the ship was African, and so Judge Marshall ruled, well, that all falls under African law, and those slaves are still slaves. They're still property, and they can be bought and sold in, in other markets. Supreme Court did nothing. 1841, there was a case called uh, uh, Groves versus Slaughter. Argued the same thing. The famous case in 1841 that they made a movie about, uh, the U.S. versus Amistad. How many of you actually seen that movie? Okay, this is this is presented as a great move for freedom, and and for a select few slaves it was actually, but it did nothing to change the laws or set any legal precedent whatsoever. Because one of the slaves on that ship had never been, had, had uh, well, he, the judge actually ruled that all the slaves on that ship had been illegally put into slavery. But there was one slave on that ship who was a Cuban, and the judge ruled he was actually in a legal slave position, and so he has to remain a slave. So there's still loopholes, and the court says they can't touch them. Sorry, that's the law. In 1842, there was a case called Prigg versus Pennsylvania. See what happened is about this time, you've got the abolitionists are really stirring the stuff up. Slaves are escaping and running north. You've got the Underground Railroad going. And all the northern states passed laws to get around the U.S. Constitution's, or the U.S. statute called the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, which said if you catch a slave in a northern state, you're bound to send them back to their owner. And they began to pass what were called personal liberty laws which basically said the state will not do this. In 1842, one of those laws was challenged before the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court struck them all down, said these are unconstitutional, send the slaves back to the South. So then what option did they have at that point? If they were serious about what they were doing, the only option they had was to ignore the Supreme Court. In 1847, a case was passed, Jones versus Van Zant. It included the, the idea of instructing populations, even in the North, that if you see a black, you can presume that he's a potential slave. In other words, this kept suspicion on people and blacks were harassed and many of, many of them were illegally kidnapped and sold into slavery in the South, uh, who were innocent and had never been a slave. They were free Northern blacks, but they were illicit men in society, evil men, much like abortion doctors and abortion clinics today, 
who saw that, well, there's no law protecting this guy. If I kidnap him and sell him, he can't testify against me because he's black. Okay? The laws were stacked against them. So in 1850, the U.S. passes this onerous law. There was a lot of discussion. It was a heated battle. But they passed a, a, a Fugitive Slave Act, even tighter controls, to the, so the South was insured that they would get their slaves back if they ran away. And this, of course, was, was dreadful. And it was, of course, the subject of the famous case in 1857 of Dred Scott. And if you, ever, if you have not ever read that case, go look it up online, spend the time, and sit down and read it. It is the most foul, vile reasoning you've ever seen in your life. These people were never meant to be included as citizens under the Constitution. It does not apply to them. They are not equal to us. They can never be equal to us. And he goes on and on and on. And besides, if we give them citizenship, that means we'll have to let the Second Amendment apply to them too. We can't risk that. So anyway, terrible decision, awful thing, and of course starts the downhill slope to the Civil War, which had been on a downhill slope for a long time. 1859, the Supreme Court of the state of Mississippi made a ruling that said, slaves in one state will remain slaves no matter what state they go to. And that was reinforcing the Fugitive Slave Act. Now what I want you to get from all this is not a good, just a good history lesson. What I want you to get from this is that's what true incrementalism looks like. It's on the side of the evil ones. But you notice they had a goal. And they started passing laws that were real increments that really solidified their position. Blacks are property. And once they achieved that legislation, they were entrenched such that they could move the entire constitutional convention with that bargaining chip. There are quotations from some of the southern delegates saying, look, if you don't maintain our slaves as property, we won't even join the union. That was their bargaining chip. And, and the like. And they were in a position of negotiating from a position of power. And once they got there, no Supreme Court decision could do anything about it. It took a major upheaval in society and, of course, a civil war. That's incrementalism. And you notice that once they were in that position and the other side began to try to push back, their incrementalism just failed time after time after time again. It didn't matter if it was by legislation in the state or in the Congress, in the federal level or at the Supreme Court level. Every bit failed because there was no overarching goal. There was no unity within the movement. There was no radical axe to the root policy of abolition. And what they got was crumbs. Oh, well, you can't originate the ship in the United States. Yay. I can imagine somebody at the time dancing around like that was a great victory. Oh, we're going to raise the fines on you. Yeah, that'll teach them. Yeah, send out the donation letter and bring in a few million dollars. Okay? I'm here to reinforce from our own history, and one of the, the worst tragedies in our own history, something you already know. And that is, it not only doesn't work, it's abominable. 
it is not incrementalism, it is crumbs. Mm -hmm. Incrementalism works for the evil guys because they don't have a righteous standard. They can have an evil goal and they'll take it bit by bit. But when you have a righteous standard that says thou shalt not murder, you can't take that bit by bit. Right. Not in good conscience. And that's the problem today. Our Christians don't have a developed conscience on this matter. Now, it doesn't mean you have to be in their face about it. You need to confront them and talk to them. Some of them may be won over more slowly at, at, at different paces. But they need to have their conscience in tune with what God's standard is. That's crumbs. Dust. I'm already out of time. <laughs> the dust is simple. It's a short point. What does the scripture say when they reject you? What does the scripture say to the, the apostles when they wouldn't hear you? When they ridiculed you? When they throw stones at you? It says, dust off your feet and go to the next house. Okay? Now, if, if you only had yourself and your own experience and all of us in our isolated places, you might say, that's all I do is dust off my feet. <laughs> where, where, oh Lord, are the houses that receive us in and provide us meals? Well, look in this room. And think of all the hundreds, if not thousands, that agree with us, that couldn't be here with us because they don't have the money to travel or other schedules or whatever. Okay? This is going to replicate in every state across this nation. Everyone, don't be discouraged when people attack us online, when they call us nasty names, when they tell lies about us, when they make up stories about us. Don't get engaged in their game. Don't waste your time trying to argue with them on Facebook. What they're doing is evil. Dust off your feet and get back to the job you're called to do. That's that point. Very simple. Trigger words. I don't have time to discourse on this very much. I'll say this. We've been accused of having a trigger word being incrementalism. The problem is that's not where the real trigger word is. The real trigger word is the word repent. You want to see the church get triggered? Tell them to repent. You want another trigger word? Murder. Oh, I can't tell that to my congregation. Half of them will leave. There are women in my congregation that have had abortions. How do we explain to them what they did was murder? Like this, it was murder. And you can be forgiven for what you did in ignorance. I'm about to start saying, clap your hands, people. Because <laughs> of this music back here. The real trigger words is the message you're preaching. And my message to you is to keep triggering them. Amen. Thank you for having me here.